Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this week? Well, thanks, Lee, for that time of prayer. And I mean, that's really what we've been talking about through this entire series of Hebrews is recognizing Jesus for who he truly is. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going to be studying this morning. But let's just walk into the book of Hebrews together with prayer this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we, we thank you for who you are. Lord, as Lee mentioned, the thief on the cross recognized not simply what he could get out of you, but recognized the glory and honor and majesty of who you are. And I pray that as we can continue this study in Hebrews together, that we would continually be coming to that question of, of recognizing you, Jesus, for the God and King that you are. And Lord, now that as we move into the second part of chapter 10, not only would we recognize you for who you are, but may we live out of that implication. And may we live in devotion to you, our, our majestic King. And so speak to us through your word, we pray this morning. Humble us before your word. Lord, let us have ears to hear as we go through a, a challenging text together. And speak to us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so we're going to be continuing chapter 10 and finishing up chapter 10 this morning. And we're going to be talking about how Jesus is the greatest way. Jesus is the greatest way. Now, as we go through this life, there's many paths we could take, right? There's a lot of journeys that we could take. And Rebecca and I were watching this documentary the other day on the, the summit of Mount Everest. And for those of you who don't know, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, and it's like this crazy climber fantasy that everyone wants to climb Everest, and it's like this massive achievement. And, and what really fascinated me as we were watching this documentary about the, the goal to summit Everest is there's really not a lot of pathways to get there. There's, it's pretty laid out for you. And there's four different base camps, and after the first base camp, there's all these crevasses that you have to navigate through, and what you'll see is you'll have a lot of the Sherpas come, and they'll set up these ladders along the way, and you literally have to walk over this massive traverse where you can't even see the bottom, and you're literally walking on this little ladder. There's, there's not much space for exploration of exploring the mountain. And, and even when you get close to the summit, there's the, these videos and pictures of just hundreds of people lined up to get to the summit. It's not very glorious, but there's literally one path you can take. And, and at the close to the summit, you, you see this cornice that people have to walk along and traverse upon. And if you go to the left, you die. And if you go to the right, you die. Right? There's not much exploring in Mount Everest. Now, what was fascinating to me about that is there's so many aspects in our life, when we think about it, we realize that a certain path will take us on a very harmful or even death-tolling trajectory. And yet, for some reason in our culture, when we think of our spiritual journeys, we have an entirely different concept where our culture will say, well, we can sort of believe anything that we want to believe, and there's a lot of different paths that lead to the same summit. Have you guys ever seen that picture of all different paths lead to God, and God's at the top of the mountain, and there's all these different ways to get up there? And then I was like, yeah, that's a nice, thoughtful picture, but if you put that in the context of Everest, 
90% of those people are going to die on the way up the mountain, right? And I think when we, when we ask this question from a spiritual perspective, I, I think it gives us some insight uh, of what it means to follow Jesus as the way, because Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus himself said, I am the only way to know God and to experience God and to comprehend God. And really, the early church, one of the first titles they were called was the way. Why? Because they practiced the way of following Jesus. And I find this fascinating. Even a lot of the early literature of the church um, outside the New Testament, so much of it is based around following Jesus as the way. So the Didache, you guys know I quote this every now and again, the Didache, which was sort of the first discipleship manual of the early church in the first century, this is one of the first things that it starts with. It says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. And the rest of the Didache is really fleshing out what it means to follow in the way of life, the way of Jesus, or in the way of death, the way of evil and injustice. And so really, when we look at these examples, we begin to realize that the early church really saw following Jesus really as a matter of life and death. And that's what I want us to be thinking of as we approach this text in Hebrews today, is following the way of Jesus or our own way literally is a matter of life or death. Just in the way that there's really one path to summit Everest, there's really one way to know and experience God. And that is through who, church? Jesus. A little more conviction? <laughs> there, there we go, right? And so let's, let's work through this passage of Hebrews together. There's going to be a lot for us to comprehend. There's going to be a lot packed into this text, um, but let's work through it together. And so Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start in verses 19. And so here we have a little summary statement. Verse 19, it says, what does it start with? Therefore. therefore. Right? Little Bible reading tip. When you come across the therefore, what do you ask? What is it? Therefore. And really what we see in this beginning or the middle of chapter 10 is this massive hinge moment in the book of Hebrews. It's this point where all the way of chapter 5 leading all the way up to chapter 10 has been talking about the very things that he summarizes here. And so he says, first of all, we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, Jesus is the sacrifice that opened up a restoration between us and God. And God is the holy place. God is the, the perfect holy God. And we as sinful human beings, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can now approach the holy. We can now experience the presence of God. And then he says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Now again, what was the picture of the curtain? This is all review stuff. What did the curtain separate? The holy place, right? And at Jesus' crucifixion, the gospel writers tell us something profound. What happened to that curtain? It was torn in half. In other words, that everything that separated us from the presence of God was now broken down because of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
That Jesus was a sacrifice that happened so that we as humans could now be restored to our Creator, restored to our holy God. And it says the living way that was opened up through the curtain, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great, what? Priest over the house of God. Now again, Jesus is the greatest high priest. We talked about that. What does it mean for Jesus to be a priest? It's an M word that we talked about. A mediator, that Christ is the one who mediates between us and God the Father. He mediates the relationship. We have a relationship that is broken with our Creator. We have a relationship that is broken because of our sin and our rebelling against God. And yet Jesus forgives us and restores us as the mediator, as the high priest. And so all this is review. All this is therefore. Now, the key part of this text is that now... The massive question that's being asked in Hebrews is if Jesus is all these things, if Jesus restores our relationship with God, if He is the mediator that restores, if He is the sacrifice that restores, if He is the King that restores, if He is the one who was obedient um, in His life and obedient in His death, if He's the one that restores all those things, what are we going to do about it? What is the church called to? And this is really the, the massive hinge moment in the book of Hebrews is now focusing on how Jesus is the greatest, but now what are we going to do as the people of God in light of this greatness of Jesus? And so this is a massive hinge moment. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And so verse 22 on, we begin to get a glimpse then where, where Hebrews answers its own question saying, what are you going to do in light of who Jesus is? Well, this is what you should do. This is what God calls us to do. And so let's read verse 22 to 25. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It says, let us do what? Draw near. Now that's a mind-blowing thought just in itself, that we can actually draw near to God himself, that we can actually be in the presence of God. And that God is a spiritual being, which means that we can draw near to Him when? Anytime, anywhere, any place. In other words, there's nothing now that hinders us from the enjoyment and the experience of the presence of God. And so if Jesus has made that available, the implication is, go do it. Isn't that crazy? I mean, there's so many things in our life that we will make sacrifices to go and experience. I mean, think of all the places in this world where you have to have some sort of barrier to enter into. What are some spaces in this world that you need something to enter into? Yeah, the White House, right? You might get shot if you don't have the right credentials, right? What are some other things? Yeah, you need a passport to travel to different countries. Just to get in a different country, you need clearance. Yeah, you need tickets to go to movies and show. I mean, there's all these barriers that we have relationally as humans. And yet, because of what Jesus has done, there's this beautiful aspect where no matter where you are, at what place, at what time, we have the ability to draw near and be in the presence of God. Because Jesus has opened up that availability. And so the text says, let us draw near. It's, it's open, it's available. How? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, what is your faith in? 
Faith is in Jesus. In other words, there's, there's nothing you have to do other than trust Jesus to experience God, to experience the presence of God. And he says, with a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, what? Clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's this imagery that we're getting here? Baptism, right? There's this cleansing aspect. There's this, there's this act of when, when we are baptized, we're putting our faith in a declaration of who Jesus is in our response to Him. And what that does is it cleanses us, it humbles us, it makes us a reliance upon who Jesus is. And so there's this beautiful thing. I mean, we celebrated baptisms a few weeks ago. There's probably some more baptisms coming up, so I'm super excited about that. But baptism is this beautiful aspect of, of where our faith becomes not just inward, but outward. Because it's a declaration. It's a celebration of what God has done in our lives. And it's this cleansing. Just as Jesus was buried in the tomb, we are buried in the water, dying to sin, becoming clean and purified as we're lifted out of the water into a resurrected life. And he says there's this beautiful aspect about your baptism where you are washed clean in not only your conscience but your sin. And then verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So here's the second aspect. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Is faithful. And so we're talking about let us hold fast to confession. Now, when we, talk, when we think normally about confession, what perhaps first comes to mind? Like an admittance of guilt or sin or shame, right? Confessing. I mean, confession literally just means to state what is true. And so when we're talking about hold fast to the confession, this is more of a statement of this is what we know to be true about who Jesus is and what he has done. So let us hold fast to the confession, our trust in Jesus of the hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, God's not going to go back and what he's accomplished. And so holding fast. Now verse 24. And let us, so here's another implication of living in light of who Jesus is. Let us consider how to stir up one another to what? To love and good works. Verse 25. Not neglecting to do what? To meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's quite a bit here in verse 24. But here the first implication is what? Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works. In other words, what do you need to stir one another up? You need to be together. You need to do life together. You need to experience life together. I mean, one of the reasons this church is called a community church is because we have the value of being together, of doing life together, of experiencing life together, which means that there's no sort of isolated Christianity. And, and the, the implication here is if you want to be a person who draws near to God, if you want to experience God, and if you want to be steadfast in your confidence and your trust in who Jesus is, what do you need around you for that to happen? You need people to encourage you. You need people to support you. You need people to guide you. 
Because there's so many things in this world that are vying for our attention and our allegiance that everything is pulling us apart where we need each other to support each other in the gospel. And so we, we need to live life together to stir one another up, to love and good works. There is no Christianity apart from community. That's why it says not neglecting to meet together. In other words, you need to be together. You, you can't just live isolated. It says, as is the habit of some. Now, here's the implication. Here's the massive context of Hebrews. It's the context of apathy. Not just apathy, but apostasy. In other words, apathy, oh, I don't really care about the gathering. I don't really care about the people, which leads to apostasy, which leads to what's apostasy? Does anyone know? Turning away from the faith, reject, rejecting God. And so the implication is here, when you're not gathering as a community, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. You make yourself incredibly vulnerable to apostasy. Why? Because if it's just me living my life, making the decisions I want to make, and I don't listen to anyone around me, what's going to happen? I'm going to follow my own path. Because is the way of Jesus easy? No, it's not at all. We're going to talk about that even more. The way of Jesus is not easy at all. We need each other to be with each other to encourage one another. And he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day where God will make everything right, the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so we're looking there at this, this massive statement of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Drawing near to God, holding fast to the confession, gathering together, encouraging one another. Now, from a very practical level, I see this as pretty significant. Because when we think about following Jesus, and when we think about the gospel story, it's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? When you actually start to process what we believe, it seems pretty counterintuitive. Think about it. We believe in a person of history named Jesus 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God, and now we read that it died for our sin, that was sacrificed and is a high priest, and now we follow him, that's pretty counterintuitive that he's going to change and transform our lives, right? Anyone find that a little strange? The gospel, am I really alone in this? <laughs> is that not strange? 100% it is. It's so counterintuitive. And something that struck me actually as we were watching this, this Everest documentary and some of the very counterintuitive things that were, they were doing. I, I mean, one of the things that they did in, in um, summiting Everest is, is they would go to base camp one and they would hike up the mountain and they would hike back down. Then they would hike up the mountain and they would hike back down. Now, if you want to go to the summit, that seems pretty counterintuitive, doesn't it? But what's the point of that? Does anyone know? Yeah, acclimatization, climatization. In other words, their lungs will not survive if they just go straight to the summit. But it seems so counterintuitive. If you want to go to the top of the mountain, you actually have to climb down the mountain for a while. Isn't that crazy? Another counterintuitive thing they did was when at base camp four, 
As they went for the final summit, guess what time they would leave in the morning? At midnight, the middle of the night. Now you would think that that would be the most dangerous time to leave because you can't see anything. You're walking on a tightrope with death on both sides and you're telling me you're going to leave in the middle of the night? It's so counterintuitive, right? And I believe that's the way the gospel is to us many times where it seems so counterintuitive, but when we begin to realize the full story of who Jesus is and what he's done, we begin to realize, oh wait, this actually makes complete sense. This defines the very world and explains the very world around us. And so, uh, again, it's this counterintuitive, which is why we need the support of one another, that why we need to know the gospel story, why we need to know what Christ has accomplished. And and this this is the other path. And so that, the Hebrew writer says, this is the way of following Jesus. It may seem counterintuitive. It may seem strange, but this is why you work together, you trust God, you you focus on what Jesus has done, don't trust in yourself, and this will be the path that is laid before you. But here's the other path. This is the the, the path that the writer of Hebrews warns us against, and this is the path that the Didache also explains in very similar terms. It says, verse 26 of chapter 10, For if we go on sinning, what? Deliberately. That's a key word. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In other words, if we are following the path of Jesus and we know who Jesus is and we choose another path, if we sin against God and choose our own way on purpose, there's consequence says there no longer remains a what? Sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a pretty intense passage, isn't it? Probably one of the most intense warnings of the New Testament. I mean, some of this language is even stronger language than Jesus gave. And so what is going on here? What is this explanation all about? Well, first of all, we have to remember the primary audience to the book of Hebrews was, was what nationality of people, what ethnicity? Jewish, right? And so as they hear some of this language, um, what type of passages would they have been coming back to? Well, first of all, the, the major one that they would have come back to is, is Numbers chapter 15. Uh, because as God gives the people instruction for sacrifice, 
He gives them instruction of what it looks like to make sacrifices for unintentional sins, right? Who here has unintentional sins? A lot of us, we sin daily without even realizing. But then there's instruction on intentional sin. And it says this, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the strangers and soldiers among them. In other words, you practice sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But then Numbers 15, verse 30, it says this, but the person who does anything with a high hand. Now, what's the language of high hand? When you're doing this, what's the, what's the uh, symbolism there, do you think? Yeah, you're sort of shaking your fist at God, right? You're defiant. You don't care. You're fighting against God. So it says, the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity, his sin, shall be on who? himself. His iniquity shall be on him. In other words, God says, if he doesn't want forgiveness, if he doesn't want mercy, then he can deal with his own sin, right? And this is the language that's coming out of Hebrews um, chapter 10 here, is this language from Numbers chapter 15. And so this is literally the language of someone who openly defies God's path. God's journey, God's wisdom, God's destruction. <coughs> and so this is all about a sinful defiance. Now, a massive question comes up here then, and this is sort of a practical pastoral question, is, is I've had people who come to this verse and they come with me and they say, well, this is pretty scary because who here has sinned intentionally before? Anyone? I don't think I saw all the hands go up, right? All the hands should be up right now. There's many times where I have sinned intentionally, where I said, God, I know this is what you want from me. I know this is the decision. I know this is the path. This is the journey. But guess what, God? What do I want? I want this way, right? We, we sin intentionally far more than we realize, far more than we realize. And the question is, well, if we are people who sin intentionally, does that mean we're going to experience the judgment of God because of that? And, and I think the fact that you're even asking that question means that you're not this person who's shaking your fist at God because you actually care about God's perspective and judgment. You actually have a concern with whether God is going to treat you according to His grace and His mercy, His forgiveness. But this is really this picture of someone who doesn't want forgiveness of someone who doesn't want mercy, of someone who wants to completely reject everything that God has for them. And I think this is a key understanding because as, as we get to this language uh, about this punishment of God and, and this, this aspect of a pretty intense language about the implications of God's punishment and God's wrath against people, the, the question that comes to us is, well, well how could God do this? 
And the answer is, well, his mercy and his forgiveness is there. I mean, that's God's first choice for everyone is, is mercy and forgiveness. It's there. It's not like he's holding out on you. It's not like he's holding his mercy. He's holding his forgiveness back. No, it's there. But it's those who do reject and deny and push against that reality. And so grace is what God desires to give us, but often we push against it. And so let's keep reading here. Verse, verse 29 then. This is a pretty intense way of clarifying this as well. How much worse is the punishment you think is deserved by basically those who trample on the Son of God? And he's referring back to the Old Testament. If there were people who rejected the law of Moses and rejected the path that the law and the instruction of the Lord that was laid out for them, he says, how much more if you're going to reject Jesus Christ himself? Now, there could be a lot more said about that, but we're going to keep going. Again, so much here in Hebrews. At the end of the day, I, I think this is our hope in this passage. <coughs> when we realize this last part of the verse, it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and when we think about that from the other perspective, if, if we're someone who rejects God, that pushes against God, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, isn't it? It's a terrifying thing. But on the flip side, for those of us who receive God's forgiveness, receive God's mercy, receive God's grace, it's a beautiful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, isn't it? And that's the whole tie back to draw near. It's, it's beautiful to draw near to God when we don't push against the only thing that could save us. And here I even think about, I think about that, that mountain too. And I, I think about the Sherpas on Everest. And, and there's this place again with cavern or crevices, um, crevices. And all the Sherpas will go out every morning and they'll set up ladders over these crevices. Now, imagine if you were a climber and so arrogant that you went out that morning and said, I'll figure out my own path. I don't need to trust what the Sherpas have done. I know, I know they examine this every morning to make sure the ladders are safe and secure. I don't need any of that. I'll walk my own path. How arrogant is that, right? It's, it's, it's stupid, right? And, and the reality is that God has, has so clearly laid out the path before us and said, walk in it. And yet we as humans do that exact same thing every day of our lives. And yet because God is faithful, because God is gracious, he still sustains us in that journey. And so this passage isn't talking about those who stumble and fall. This passage isn't about those who follow Jesus and fail along the journey. Because for those of us who are followers of Jesus, how many of you have failed along the journey? All of us. And yet God is faithful to us. And so now in this last section of Hebrews, verse 32 on, he's going to bring up something historically that they're going through. Something that will 
deter them from the path and the journey of following Jesus. He says in this, in verse 32, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, right? Now, we spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. When we read about the early church, did the early church experience a lot of sufferings? An incredible amount of sufferings. And even in this passage, it's most likely referring to this Jewish community in Rome where the Emperor Claudius in around AD 49 basically tried to dispel all the Jews. And so basically he's pushing this, this persecution and exile against them. This is the historical reference that he's talking about. He says, sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, that's quite wild, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Who would joyfully have all your possessions stolen in this room? Anyone? What would we be doing? We'd be pulling guns out or something, right? Right? I know you farmers all have guns, right? We'd be pulling guns out on people on our property, but we, we read they're, they're joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, all, all the, the hardship that you had to go through and all the times where you felt like you couldn't trust God anymore, when you felt like God's goodness was holding out on you, when you felt like God was allowing you to go through all these things because he abandoned you or he, he forsook you or he didn't care about you anymore, he says, you know what? Remember your confidence. Remember your hope. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What is the great reward, church? Jesus himself. And because Jesus is king, we get the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? We get the reward of all things made right. All the things, all the injustices, all the evils that have been done, God will turn to good. And I mean, we, we just did this in day camp. What was the, the main verse in the last day of day camp with the story of Joseph? What God intended for evil? Or what? No, sorry. What your brothers intended for evil, God intended for good, right? Where God can restore and redeem and make right that which is broken. He said, for you have need of endurance. In other words, you need to fight through these hard times in life so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he brings up Habakkuk, and we had a great time going through Habakkuk a couple years ago. And this is what he says. He quotes from Habakkuk 2. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by what? faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, what he's really coming down to is this point of, 
even when the journey of following Jesus is difficult, remember that it's still the right path. Could you imagine if, if all the climbers of Everest, as they're walking up the mountain, as they get to a difficult section, and, and I think there's one section where the, I think there's a 500-meter wall or something that's like straight vertical, and they all have to climb all the way to the top because they're not allowed water on the way because if they drop a water bottle, they could kill someone behind them. So it's a pretty intense straight to the top to the plateau. Now, could you imagine if some of those climbers got halfway up and said, you know what, there has to be easier way than this. We have to find a different path. Are they going to find that right path? No, that is the path. That's the way there. And so, so often in our journey with Jesus, we, we can get so caught up when life gets hard or difficult, when we go through hardship and pain and suffering and trials, we can say like, God, is this the right path? Like, God, I don't trust you anymore. God, I'm, I'm pulling away to the side. I'm going to veer left or go a different direction. But at the end of the day, that is the path. And what he's doing to these, these, um, these audience in Hebrews is saying, you guys are going to be so tempted, and you have been so tempted, to turn away from Jesus because of difficulty, because of trials, because of hardship. But he's saying, you can't, because that's the only path. And the, the way of Jesus, again, is not easy. It's incredibly difficult but it is the right way. It is the way. And so as we talk about Jesus as the greatest way, don't get the implication that that means it's going to be easy. It's incredibly difficult. And yet, remember in it that God is faithful. And so let me, let me just say a quick summary statement, sort of a recap. As we, as we process together as a community of faith, First of all, as we, we, we journey with God and we understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and as we desire to follow the way of Jesus, Hebrews really gives us a few key instructions. First of all, we journey with God. And there's a joy to that, right? There's a joy to journeying with God because we can pray to God. We can experience His presence. We can come to Him for wisdom. We can come to Him for comfort. We can come to Him for direction. So when we journey with God and we realize that we have this capacity to be in the presence of God, we can draw near because of what Jesus has done, that changes our journey completely. Secondly, in our journey, we journey with others. We do this as a community of faith. We do this with the support and love and encouragement of one another because this is a journey that we cannot take alone. If, if someone tries to climb Mount Everest alone, they're going to die, aren't they? We can't survive this journey of faith alone. We need each other. We need to gather. We need to disciple. We need to mentor. So I don't know what that looks like in your life, whether it's joining one of our community groups or whether it's joining the ladies group that was sharing this morning or joining Freedom Session or finding a spiritual director or a spiritual mentor. This is something we need to take seriously journey with others. And then the third point, journey encouraged, 
encouraged by God and the gospel, and journey encouraging, right? That's a key one. Uh, again, as you, you gather with others, what's our natural tendency as we're gathered with a bunch of people different than us? To point at all the flaws and issues and things to criticize, right? Whereas if you're continually, just, I'm, I don't know, I'll keep coming back to Everest. That's my thing this morning, I guess. But just imagine you're climbing Everest and could you imagine having a Sherpa that's just like dissing you the whole time? Like, you're a horrible climber. Why are you here? Like, you shouldn't be here. You're, you can't even walk 20 feet. Like, you're already gasping for air and we haven't even got to the first summit, right? And so if you're someone who's always surrounded by people who are critical, are you going to go very far on the journey? No. But when we encourage one another, when we support one another, when we love each other, we're going to go so far on the journey. Number four, journey through difficulty. Meaning, yes, God allows us to question his goodness. But does that mean God isn't good? No. Yes, God allows us to go through hardship, but does that mean God doesn't care about us? No. He's with us. And then number five, journey with the future in mind. In other words, the, the day of the Lord is drawing near. That's the hope. And it's this essence that, you know what? No matter what we go through in life, as difficult as it may be in this season, as hard as it may be in this season, as much as I think God's goodness is a void of me in this season, I know it's coming. I know there will be a new heavens and a new earth. I know God is reconciling all things to himself. I know God is making all things right. I know that God will judge evil and injustice. So all the evil and injustice in my life, I can leave to him because vengeance is who's according to the Lord? Vengeance is mine. God's going to deal with it. I don't have to take that hardship of vengeance upon myself. And so I pray that as we, we make this shift in the book of Hebrews, as we realize all these past months of looking who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that we now, especially as we head into the fall, would begin to begin comprehending and thinking and examining our lives about, well, what does it look to follow him, to follow in the path of journeying with Christ? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we first of all thank you that you are a God that we can be with, that we can draw near, that we can experience and enjoy. And I pray that as we go through the, the journey of faith, as we go through the journey of following you, Lord, I pray that even though there's going to be so many things that try to sway us and lead us off the way of Jesus, I pray that you would just guide us by your Spirit and that we would trust you in that journey. Lord, there's so many things externally beyond us that could lead us away from you. There's so many things internally, our own doubts, our own questions that can lead us from you. And so I pray that you would just hold us by your grace, by your mercy, by your forgiveness so that we can be faithful and trusting you till the day of the Lord comes and all things are made right by your justice and your love. We thank you, Jesus, for 
showing us the way. May we be wise and humble enough to walk in it. Thank you, gracious God. Amen. Amen.